Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers. We're glad you're with us. Uh, We're in a series that we started last week called Salvation Spaces. And we're talking about what the gospel of Jesus is all about. And the challenge is not to accept just one part of the gospel message, but to understand the robust nature of all of it and how it fits together. Last week, the space that we wanted you to envision was the throne room of God, the impetus behind the gospel. That God Almighty, sitting on his throne, looked down on the world he created, even in its rebellion, and he saw a need. So he sent his son to come to this world to bring the solution to not just a need, but multiple needs. And this series is going to use the book of Romans to draw out these things that God has done, these movements of God in the spaces in which he meets us. So last week, we just defined the gospel very generally as all that God has done for a broken and dying world through Jesus. And all that God has done for a broken and dying world in Jesus is called the gospel and salvation. A word that is used flippantly because we just take one piece of it. Normally, if you ask someone, what is the gospel? They will surround themselves or ground themselves in the fact that it's the forgiveness of sins. And it is. And that is beautiful and rich, but that is a drop in the ocean of what salvation is all about. It is is forgiveness of sins, but so much more. And that's what we want to grasp. In this series, we're going to be peeling back parts of salvation that you're fully aware of. And parts of salvation that may be, um, how shall I say, neglected or unseen or maybe even sometimes uh, not valued. Because Paul tells us it is the power of God that brings salvation. So today we're going to begin to venture in, how does God save us? What, is, what are the movements of God that bring salvation to us? And he's going to meet us in different places to do this. So the first place we talked about was the throne room, where God decided to act on our behalf. The second place we're going to take you to is the altar of sacrifice. Now, the term altar doesn't mean much in our culture. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. That the word altar doesn't fit into the American psyche or understanding. It seems like a long time ago barbaric uh, event. But we're going to talk a little bit about today because there's something beautiful to be found in an altar experience with God. But to do that, we have to understand something about God that is undeniably biblical Yet even in my conversations in the hallway today, it's difficult for some people to uh, come to agreement on, and that is the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We love the love of God. We don't so much love the wrath of God, as if the wrath of God is in contradiction to his love. There are people that will tell you, I have conversations with them very casually, but they can't believe in a God of wrath. They don't want to believe in a God of wrath, which means we're making God in our own image. It's a dangerous thing to put human emotions on God unless the Bible tells you he has those. Otherwise, we can't turn God into our image, but we need to realize some of our responses in life come because we're made in his image. So here's what we need to know. God clearly and purely loves each and every person. That's a scriptural truth. It's one we can build our lives on. But because God loves people so greatly... God is not and will never be indifferent to sin, 
at how sin destroys what he's created. He loves everyone with a boundless, unceasing love, but he also will not look at sin and act like it's not occurring and it's not bringing the damage that it brings. In fact, in your Old Testament, in Habakkuk chapter one, the Old Testament prophet says this about God. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. It is crystal clear in scripture that God does not take sin lightly and he doesn't take it narrowly the way we take it as just a natural result of being human. Luke Proctor, my buddy who's a preacher, said it on this passage. He said these words about this. The wrath of God is not contradictory to his goodness and his love. God is not interested in just being nice. If nice means letting the poison of sin devastate the people he loves. Now, I can't stretch this too far, but you can understand wrath and love at the same time. You're capable of both. In fact, you're capable of a wrath that comes from your love. So allow me to use an illustration that runs out really quick, but it makes the point, I believe. I love my wife, my two sons. I love my daughter-in-law and our grandchild. I love my mom and my dad and my brothers and their families. And if you harmed any one of them, my love for them would produce a wrath in me. Are you understanding? It would be a natural response of love to try to stop the evil and damage that is happening to something you love. This is why the wrath of God and the love of God are not in opposition of one another. They actually, one comes from the other. But let's also clear the deck here. The wrath of God is not the irrational lack of self-control anger that I have. Now, notice I didn't accuse you of that. But has anybody else in the room caught their head on a cabinet raising up too quick in the kitchen? And you find an irrational lack of self-control or is it just your preacher? Yeah, there you are. You understand that God's wrath is not just this irresponsible emotional outburst. Here's a good definition that will appear on the screen. God's anger is the settled opposition of his holy nature to everything that is evil and comes because of evil. It is God's settled opposition of his nature to oppose everything that is evil and comes from evil. The Bible speaks of this. God is loving and God has a holy, justifiable wrath. So what do we do with all of this? Well, if God's anger is real, then there's only one of two results of it. All sin will be confronted by God's wrath or it will be redeemed by God's grace. But sin will never be ignored. It'll never be treated as if it didn't happen. So how does God deal with his love for us and his wrath toward the sin we have committed, not the accidents, not the mistakes, the choices. What is God going to do? He's going to provide a propitiation. Now, that's not a word you use anywhere but in this building. But I need us to understand it, and I don't need us to understand it from a knowledge base. I want us to understand it from a level of appreciation to see the beauty of God through something as graphic as an altar, So what is a propitiation? Let's put the definition up. The turning aside of anger by the offering of a sacrifice which is found acceptable by the one who's been wronged. Let me say it again slowly. A propitiation is the turning away of righteous anger by a sacrifice that is found acceptable by the person who's been wronged. 
It's often called, in some of your Bibles, atonement. But the, the word is propitiation. And so what does this mean? Well, let me show you this, because I think this is a beautiful part of understanding God in all of this. The first move of the gospel was for Jesus to come to earth in the incarnation, to take on human flesh and walk among us. That's the first movement of the gospel. God's choice to love us enough to send his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. That is the first movement. But the first movement of God on earth was propitiation. It's necessary. It's not just optional. It's not poetic. It's not to paint a picture. It was needed. And this takes place at an altar. But because the altar doesn't mean much to us, let me take you back to your Old Testament and walk you through the concept of the altar. You, you might remember that God told his people that they were to provide a sacrifice to him because of their sins, an atoning sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice. You need to do this thing because of your sin. You need to acknowledge by blood that you have sinned against me. It's a pretty powerful statement. So God took this instrument, this Ark of the Covenant. You remember Indiana Jones, right? Three of you? Okay. So there's this little chest, and in this chest that they carried that was covered with ornate uh, artistry, there was uh, Aaron's rod, a rod that the, the high priest Aaron carried that budded at one point in time, and that was placed in the Ark. The tablets that Moses wrote the law on were placed in the Ark, and there was a gold container that held manna, and that was placed in the Ark. And they created a lid for this, and they covered it in gold, and it had two angels on both ends whose had their, uh, I'll turn this way so you can see, who had their wings up, and their wings were touching at the tips, and it provided a covering over what they called the mercy seat. Now, I know you don't care much about that, but let me tell you what happened there. The priest would come in every year on the Day of Atonement, and he would take the blood of a goat, a lamb, uh, the, the, the best animal he had, not the snaggly one with the bad leg you were going to kill anyway, but the best of your breed. And he would bring it in and he would take its blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat for his own sins. And then he would take another lamb, ram or sheep or goat, and he would take its blood and on behalf of the people, he would offer the atoning sacrifice by taking this uh, plant and its leaves and he would put it in the blood and then he would sprinkle it on the holy seat, and God said, I will not hold your sins against you. But here's what's interesting. That sacrifice that the priest was offering in, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, that did not take away their sin. It paused God's wrath. And I'll show you the end of this story here in just a little bit. And this is where the propitiation offering of the high priest was offered to God. A sacrifice pleasing to the one who was wronged. And this is what God said I want you to do. So now we come back to our story, found in the, in the story that Paul writes to the Romans and, and what he's depicting to them. We have an issue. What is the issue? We have an unattainable righteousness issue. What we need, we can't get. We can't afford it, we can't buy it, we can't recreate it. The thing that's missing of our lives is righteousness and it is unobtainable. That's exciting, right? And encouraging. That's why he came to church. So basically said, you have a major lifelong problem and you can do nothing about it. God bless you all. Now there's hope in the gospel. That's why God moved from his throne to the altar. So look at Romans 1.16. This is the thesis statement of the whole book. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Remember what we learned last week. We didn't ask God for it. We couldn't have dreamed of this. We had no way to to do this. God's ways are not our ways. It says it is the power of salvation that can only come from God. Then he goes to verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. This is that phrase again we don't want to talk about, the wrath of God. Now, don't let them see you looking, but if you give a side eye to your right or left, those people get God's wrath. It's coming. And if they're looking at you, you know what they're thinking? That guy's going to get God's wrath. Because every single one of us, what Paul is about to prove, will face God's holy and justifiable wrath. In fact, in Romans 3.10, he summarizes it directly. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who will stand before God on the day of judgment with an excuse. There'll be nobody who will look at God and say, you're wrong. The wrath of God against what sin has done to us and the poison we have entered into our own system will be accounted. So the holiness of God will not dismiss sin, but the love of God will provide a solution. So you say, well, why have one if you have to have the other? They work together and I'll show you how. So in in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, and that's a lot of verses, and you can thank me later, we're not going to read them all. But one of my core values as a preacher is I don't want to tell you what's in the Bible, I want to show you what's in the Bible. So I'm going to ask you this week to spend time in Romans 1, 2, and 3 reading this to see if what I'm telling you this morning is correct. Paul summarizes here that there are three kinds of people who are going to face God's wrath because of what they've done or have not done. So let's walk through the first group. The I don't care person. The first group of people who are justifiably going to face the wrath of God are the people who just don't care. But Mark, what don't they care about? They don't care about God himself. They reject him. Look at verse 25, chapter 1. They exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. It's a demonstrable attitude. They don't care about God. They don't care about God's character. And they don't care about God's right as creator to decide what does and doesn't work here. See, God is not important to who they are. And God is not important to how they live. And because of that, Paul, in verses 18 through 32, the remainder of chapter 1, Paul shows you what happens to a person who doesn't care about God as creator. They become more of a creature than they do the image of God. He describes it this way in verse 28. They do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. They have rejected the wise and loving rule of God. And because of that, they have become creatures. They look at God and they say, I don't care what you say is good. I don't care what you say is wise. I'm going to do what I want because it pleases me. There's nobody in this room who hears that and goes, oh, they don't have anything common. We all hear that and go, wow, they're going to get smoked. But, you know, of course, that's not us. 
In verses 24, 26, and 28, it says God gives them what they ask for. He lets them have a life without him, and they spiral into a lack of self-control and the worst part of humanity. Okay, but let's not talk about those folks because they're not here today. Let's talk about the second group. The, but I'm a good person person. You know, I'm good people. God's, Paul doesn't say that God's wrath is coming for the arrogant and defiant only. It comes for good people too. These people live their lives saying, comparatively, I'm a pretty good person. And they're probably correct. But they misunderstood that being saved in the salvation of God is not based on a ledger sheet of whether you've been more good than bad. It has little to do with how good you are. In fact, I love to say this because it makes people go, what? It makes you think, and that's what I'm here to do is to make you think with me. Hell will be full of good people, and heaven will be full of people who were never good. The standard, the American standard to heaven is nowhere in Scripture, and it should not be relied on. My buddy Luke Proctor one more time says, these people are good. They do community service. They pay their taxes. They salute the flag. They donate blood. They coach Little League. They love their family. They got a sign in their yard that says, just be kind. They know they're not perfect, but they're better than that guy. So because of that, they think that as in their fractured human nature that God is going to take the upper 40%. Romans chapter 2, verse 16 says, God judges people's secrets. That's a frightening verse, isn't it? I can convince you I'm a better person than I am, at least some of you. I can put on airs and act a certain way in public, but in private, be full of a brokenness, warped by my own greed, my own lust, my own anger, my own lack of forgiveness. I wonder if you looked at the American church in particular, if it's not full of people who are saying to God, but I'm a good person person. I wonder sometimes if for the church people, we need to go beyond living above immorality and we should try to live above moralism. We should not make our walk with Jesus. Well, I don't do that anymore and I don't do that anymore and I don't do that anymore. And basically it's called moralism. I'm going to prove to God how good I am because he gave me a second chance. God did not give you a second chance. He gave you a new heart. It's not about moralism. That's why Romans 2, 3 says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? And of course we know the answer. So here's what we know. Bad guys are going to face the wrath of God. And good guys are going to face the wrath of God. There's a third group. The, but I'm a religious person person. This is a person that says, I'm keeping the rules. Ever, ever since I, I confessed to God, I, I've done the right thing. I, I, I live the right way at the right time in the right places. I'm, I'm following God's rules, and this was the Jews. Paul had condemned the non-Jews already. But now he's looking at the Jews, and he says, you've been circumcised. Good for you. You keep the law. Good for you. You go to the, the temple, and you offer sacrifices. Good for you. But that doesn't save you. He's trying to gather all the attention. That's why in Matthew, Jesus says, these, thing, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He was talking about religious people. He said, they're not doing what they're doing because they love the Father. They're doing what they're doing as if God owes them something. 
They've entered into a relationship with God where they're trying to get him to have to give them something because of what they're doing. And Paul wastes no sentimentality to all three groups. One preacher said it this way, you got the good guys, you got the bad guys, and you got God's guys. And Paul says to all three groups, there is no one righteous, not even one. So, if we have to have a righteousness to be saved, what is God going to do with our shattered mess? How did God respond to our need? From the throne of heaven, he looked down and he brought us to the altar. You see, there, we have two problems. I have 78, I don't know about you, but let's talk about the two I know we all have. Number one, every one of us is guilty before God and should be punished. Agree? Even if you don't agree, I'm right. Okay? So every single one of us is guilty and deserves punishment. Second problem we have is we have a slavery to sin in our flesh that we are not able to break ourselves free from. It takes a higher power. What God does is he deals with the first problem first. What do we do with our guilt? The incarnation was the first move of God coming to earth. The second move on earth was to provide at the altar the propitiation that takes care of our first problem. What do we do with the penalty coming our way? And this is what Romans is all about, if you haven't connected yet. How can sinners be brought back into a right relationship with God? The answer begins with the propitiation, the atoning blood of Jesus on the altar of sacrifice. Verse 21. Now, apart from the law, And if I can define that very simply, you might think that's the law, the the dietary laws, the sacrificial laws, you can't wear polyester, which was always a good idea. You can't wear polyester. All of those stipulations in Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, I don't believe that's what Paul is using the law here. Can we just interpret it very simply this way? For all of your efforts to save yourself, apart from all of those broken efforts, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Look at verse 24 or 22. The righteousness is given. It's not earned. It's not deserved. It's not due. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. That has less to do with nationality and it has more to do with bad guys, good guys, and God's guys. Nobody gets in because of their ethnic background. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So my worthless form of righteousness at its best day is filthy rags, Isaiah. So I need a righteousness that comes from God that appeals to God. So verse 21, the righteousness of God has been made known. And verse 24, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So I know I'm giving you a lot of terms today. Just hold on with me. There are two kinds of righteousness described in Scripture. The first is virtue, integrity, and upright behavior. I'm out. How about you? On my best day, I might have one of those for five minutes, but all three of them never. Virtue, integrity, upright behavior. So that righteousness I'll never have. The other form of righteousness in Scripture is right standing with God. And when Paul uses the term righteousness in Romans, he's always referring to the second one, a right standing with God. 
And if you look at verses 21 through 24, you're going to see what gives someone right standing with God. Well, the first thing is, it's apart from law. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do by the ledger seat of your life. Also, right standing comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. It's the work that Jesus did. God took the initiative. Jesus came to provide it. There's no other way to get it. Right standing comes because all who are in Christ are justified. I remember in church camp, I think it was the first place I ever heard the expression, justified means just as if you'd never sinned. I thought, that's a good wordplay. I remember that. It's wrong. Justification is not just as if you'd never sinned because that would make God a liar. Justification is just as if my penalty had been paid. God doesn't ignore our sin. He can't. But he dealt with our sin. Not by ignoring it. I'll show you how in a moment. And right standing is freely by his grace. No cost to us. Every single expense on him. How? To the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So my final question this morning, to bring this all together so that you can answer the so what question. How is it possible for a truly righteous God to declare you and me to be righteous? If my problem is, I have an unobtainable righteousness problem. What did God do? to allow me to be considered righteous? What did he do to allow you to be considered righteous? If I'm guilty before him, whether I'm a bad guy, good guy, or God's guy, what chance do I have to escape the punishment I am deserving of? Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That actual word in our English language that they have put as a sacrifice of atonement is the word propitiation. He is that Jesus himself would become the sacrifice that would appease the one who was wronged. How? Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You see, you might remember about an hour and a half ago when I told you that at the altar, when the priest sprinkled the blood on the holy seat, that that only uh, took care of the promise. It didn't take care of the sin. It was at this moment He said, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Why? Because he knew what Jesus would bring. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus did not have to convince God not to be that mad. Jesus didn't go to God and say, don't be mad at them, be mad at me and beat me up and then somehow that'll make you feel better. That's not our God. You see, when you understand, it wasn't that just God sent Jesus to die on the cross that his blood might lay itself on the mercy seat. God himself was on the cross. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They're not separate beings. Jesus came and gave the blood of God himself on the altar. It takes you to Genesis 22. Where God says to Abraham, take Isaac, your only son, the one you love. And he takes him to Mount Moriah. And he says, offer him as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham trusts God. And he takes uh, Isaac to the mountaintop. And Isaac says, where's the sacrifice, dad? And he says, God will provide. And then he puts him on the altar. And he raises his knife. And God says, now I know. Now I know that you trust me. Do not strike your son. And over in the thicket was a poor ram. 
Wrong place, wrong time. And that ram gets taken and his blood gets offered on the sacrifice. It pleases God. It was the faith in Abraham that pleased God. It wasn't the death of the ram. And that Mount Moriah where Abraham, Genesis 22, if you don't know the story, there's another passage to read this week. Mount Moriah would be purchased by King David. A threshing floor would be bought and David would build the holy city on that mountain. We don't call it Moriah anymore. They call it Jerusalem. On the location of Abraham's sacrifice, the holy place was set down in that spot. And instead of the blood of a ram, a goat, or a, or a sheep, the God himself placed his blood on the altar. Jesus did not keep an angry God from wiping us out. God himself lovingly paid the price of his own wrath. That's why Jesus would say to his disciples when they said, hey, can we have a role in your kingdom? And he said, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, no. So in Gethsemane, he weeps. He starts to bleed under the tension of the wrath of God. You may not want to believe in the wrath of God. I'm here to tell you Jesus did. But it wasn't uncontrollable rage. Jesus took the sins of the world on himself. There is no salvation without his propitiation. It's less about you and me. We're going to talk about justification next week. Salvation doesn't begin with what we get. Salvation begins with what he gave. And he poured his blood out for us. You see, this whole series can be about the movements of God, and that's what it's going to be. But may we never forget the God who moves. May we never forget the God who chose this, who in his infinite wisdom found a way to take care of our irreconcilable issues through the blood of his son. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He poured his blood out on the mercy seat. Why don't we have sacrifices anymore? Because he finished it. When the temple curtain was torn on his death on the cross, the holy of holies is no longer a space. The work was finished. The great sacrifice was offered. All of our issues dissolved in the blood of Jesus. Without his blood, the wrath of God is ours. Covered in his blood, like the Passover, we are freed from our slavery to head to the promised land. This is why the disciple John would say these words in 1 John 2.2. Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want you to take just a moment Remain seated. Watch this video as we get to hear the story told in a powerful way. Imagine you stand before an altar, a table shape made from earthen materials, each corner with a sort of horn that reaches to the sky. But there is no beauty here. It reeks of death and is stained of blood. Every element invades the senses, impressing at each moment the gravity of death. A priest stands nearby. He asks for a lamb, 
you turn to usher that unblemished creature before its end. A great exchange. Here in this event, a substitution is given. A life for a life. The cost of sin. The holiness and justice of God producing a wrath which is propitiated or moved on to the meek and gentle animal. Until tomorrow, another lamb is offered. And again, and again, unable to change the one who needs the lamb or to pacify the wrath of the one who asked for it. But then, a new priest comes. He does not ask for a lamb. He himself will lay on the table. He himself will propitiate the wrath to move it upon himself. He himself will change the one in need of the lamb and pacify the one who asked for it. The great exchange. Here is our substitute, a life for lives, the cost of sin, the holiness and justice of God, our propitiation. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.